Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome, one and all, to episode 34 of Americans Watching the Footy from South San Francisco, California. I am Benjamin Castle with my brother Ethan. How's it going, everyone? We are recording this just after the conclusion of the Queen's Birthday match. Now, one of the fundamental differences between America and Australia, while we both were British colonies at one time, the difference is Australia still kind of likes being British, whereas in America, we have a holiday every year where we celebrate not being British. You know, I constantly ask, like, why anything involving the royal family or the queen or any royal wedding or the royal baby's first royal flush is ever talked about in America when, you know, a little under 250 years ago, we kind of fought a whole war so that we didn't have to care about that. And also so we didn't have to eat mushy peas with every meal. Mushy peas, not scram. Only six games to get into this round, but we're going to be talking extensively about a couple of them, including that Queen's Birthday match. But before we do that, we're going to have to devote some time to an off-field incident, one that probably is going to get more airtime than any off-field incident we've ever discussed to this point. I can't believe, looking back, that this actually happened after the round had already gotten underway. That just tells you how crazy the whole news cycle has been and how much happened since then, both with this story itself and the games that happened afterward. On our Friday evening, so Saturday morning into afternoon in Australia, a couple photos were leaked that showed Bailey Smith of the Western Bulldogs with a dime bag of some sort of white powder. Took a few hours for the Bulldogs to make a statement saying that they were investigating, and about a day ago at this point, Baz fessed up. Took pretty much full ownership, didn't say exactly what it was, but come on, it was cocaine. Admittedly, he confessed because he got caught, but I mean, what was he going to do otherwise? He linked his drug use and his leave of absence that he took before the season to a spiraling of behaviors after the grand final loss. And no official suspension has been handed down yet, but it looks like it'll be a two-week suspension for conduct unbecoming, tying into the league substance policy, and that would be served following his headbutting ban. To me, the apology seemed as genuine as it could be, and he's been open about his mental health struggles in the past. The issue with the discourse around it is that a lot of people are seeing mental health being used as a crutch, maybe not as much in this case, or maybe they just don't exactly know about what Baz had already been through. But there's been criticism of the AFL illicit substance policy for a number of years now, and how there's been this sort of loophole with mental health was reading a story from 2019, multiple of them actually, where a topic of discussion was mental health being used as a way to get exemptions for testing. I assume that loophole has closed at this point, but I'm not entirely sure. I know, though, that 
AFL fans bemoan that their drug testing policy is far behind that of other leagues. I know that until recent updates, the first couple strikes for controlled substances weren't even publicly announced. Regarding the whole link between mental health and substance abuse, I think some of the discourse here needs to be altered a bit. And having this happen with a high-profile public figure could actually end up being a really positive thing for the stigma around mental health and substance abuse if this goes in the right direction, which would be for people to start to see the links between mental health struggles and substance abuse and start to create an understanding of, you know, this is how people fall down that path. And in turn, how can we prevent this? That said, you know, it shouldn't be an excuse. It shouldn't be used as a crutch. And there does need to be discipline to help discourage people from going down that path. You know, this discipline is used, you know, if exercised properly, it's used with the concept of you should want to avoid doing this. Um, two general observations. One, don't do cocaine. Drugs are bad. Okay. Number two, if you're going to use cocaine or any other substance, don't put it in photos or videos. But yeah, the whole, the most positive possible outcome from this would be for people to gain understanding of how people go down that path and what can be done to help prevent it. And again, for it to happen with Bailey Smith in particular means it's going to be a high profile thing. There's going to be a lot of discussion about it. And if that discussion heads in the positive direction, this could actually be a landmark event for, you know, exploring mental health and how to prevent substance abuse. And hopefully for Bailey himself, this is an isolated incident and he's able to avoid going down a pretty dark path. The statement seems to imply that he's past that period, and I hope that's the case. And you're correct about the, the link between substance use and mental health. Those two being coupled becomes an even more present concern. And of course, there still needs to be some sort of policy in terms of discipline, which should include missing game time, but also have a good deal of longer term treatment therapy involved. I don't understand why the World Loop Beverage would say, fuck the policy altogether, let's not have one. That just sets the absolute wrong example of saying this is completely okay. And it just more looks like he's a sore loser who is wanting one of his key players back than actually wanting to enact meaningful change. The other thing I don't like is comparing the Bailey Smith stuff to the Essendon supplements issue. The former is something that seems to be somewhat pervasive throughout the sporting culture, but only comes to light when it's individuals involved. The latter was something systematic, organized by one person at one football club, which ended up having an effect on the entire club and the integrity of the competition because it was performance enhancing. And there needs to be a line drawn in this discourse between performance enhancing drugs and controlled substances. There are times when people ask, you know, why does steroid use result in longer suspensions than other things, whether it be other drugs or off-field legal issues? And I think that really has to do with the league having to really preside over matters that happen within the sport. Whereas you know, if a guy gets into a bar fight, that's not good, but that didn't happen within the sport that didn't happen within the game. So there are other legal entities that can handle that, whereas things that happen on the field need to be governed by the league. So 
if you're ever asking, like, within the NFL, you know, why is this worth a longer suspension than, you know, domestic violence or whatever, one of those things can also be disciplined by the state or federal government. One of those is a guy cheating at football, which is left to the football league to govern. Honestly, I wish that we could segue right into the Essendon game off that because there's some stuff to talk about there in terms of one of the players and coaches in particular that they welcomed back. But before that, we had a Thursday night game that lived up to a lot of the hype and a lot of the recent history of this matchup in Richmond and Port Adelaide. Richmond got off to a slow start. Their pressure was light. There were high uncontested numbers early for the power, but the game turned pretty quickly. It turned before the halfway point of the first quarter. Dustin Martin took advantage after free kick. Then a controversial 50 was paid to Jack Graham after Kane Farrell ran through the protected area, which seems way too wide. 10 meters seems almost unconstitutional. I think it would be more accurate to say he ran in the vicinity of the protected area. It's like the protected area has its own protected area surrounding it. Graham's kick gave Richmond the lead, and from there they only gave it up for a little over three minutes of game time early in the fourth quarter. Port surged a bit in the mid to late third, but it was the Tigers' game throughout with some really clever moving around of pieces by Damian Hardwick. Richmond's flexibility was on full display as they won 11-11-77 to Port Adelaide's 10-5-65. I thought this was Damian Hardwick's best coach game of the year, and he's had some good ones, but he ended up shuffling a lot of pieces around, and it got awesome results, moving Liam Baker forward, Noah Balta back, Josh Gibkiss and Jaden Short moved forward, and Hugo Ralph Smith was all over the ground. We've known about Balta's ability to play both as a forward and as a defenseman, but to see it with some of the others... Gibkiss is like the last guy I would have guessed they would have done that with. And it worked super well. You know, I think good coaching is making the necessary obvious adjustments. Great coaching is doing things that the common observer wouldn't see. And in this case, that's what Damian Hardwick did. I expected Gibkiss to perform a little better than he did on Todd Marshall. In terms of the fullbacks, Robbie Terrence's game didn't jump out to me right away, but... Nine intercepts and seven marks is pretty damn good. He won a lot of important contests, especially in the later going to keep Richmond afloat when Port were at their best in that late third, early fourth. But going back toward the guys that were moved around, Gipkis, Jaden Short was moved up, Noah Balta went forward and back, Hugo Ralph Smith got some good runs from the back lines and ended up playing in the forward half a decent amount. But the real story here was Liam Baker, who probably saved the day for Richmond more than anyone else. Had a lot of successful high leverage possessions, was able to score for turnover really well. The commentators were talking about how he's one of the cleanest players below the waist in the competition. Giggity. Just really good footwork and positioning. And if that weren't enough, after Richmond had retaken the lead, he deked a bit and caused Tom Jonas and Zach Butters to collide. Dustin Martin scored career goal 300 from there, and Port's rotations were fucked. The most shocking thing out of all of this, I thought, was the lack of concussion tests for the two, considering they definitely had some head-on-head collision there. Jonas ended up staying off the ground for a little over eight minutes, Butters for a little over six minutes. K 
Ken Hinckley said the team doctor handled things right. The doctor's been there for 25 years, and the league seemed to be fine with things. Um, okay, then. Yeah, I was a little surprised, especially when Hort had actually been dinged for not giving Hamish Hartlett proper tests a few years back, but clearly they know more than I do and more than Abby Holmes does. Not like she was trying to be wrong, but having been a player herself, she was rightfully concerned. From there, though, with the time those two spent off the ground, it was really tough for Hankley to have to manage things. The players were spent, it was visible, and Richmond were able to seal things from there. If you look at the swing in contested possessions by quarter, you can definitely see some of that effect. Port Adelaide had a small advantage in each of the first three quarters, and then Richmond plus 12 in the fourth. The weird thing is, despite the score being as close as it was, this felt like Richmond was in control throughout, and I think the score would have been much more reflective of the way I saw the game had Shea Bolton been able to put a couple of his five behinds through the big sticks. I was expecting Jason Dunstall to have a heart attack with his and others' dribble kicks. Despite the goal-kicking struggles, Bolton was still a very active player, still shaped the game positively for the most part, though he could have had a much bigger impact on the score sheet, obviously. Also of note, Camden McIntosh got off to a really great start in this game. He was part of that first quarter surge when the Tigers went from down 13-1 to ahead 32-13 by the end of the quarter. And they got that lead up to 26 early in the second. McIntosh actually scored a goal about three minutes into the second quarter. Also, I thought there were a couple times when Daniel Rioli ended up pushing forward. Did a really nice job. Rioli has always been able to push forward, but this past year, him being able to add that back dimension to his game has done wonders. I saw some things about how many important players he had been able to shut down. And while that part of his game didn't stand out as much because of Richmond's forward time. He was quietly doing the right thing at the back once again. Port Adelaide fall to 5-7 and seven and, frankly, didn't play all that well. I will say Carl Amon had a really nice game. 29 disposals, 10 marks, 6 score involvements, 555 meters gained. We'll give their other stats in a bit, but hint, hint, Dan Houston, Ryan Burton... Travis Boak, Connor Rosie all had nice games, as did Todd Marshall and Alir Alir. Not much else, though. Robbie Gray didn't touch the ball in the second half. Steven Motlop had a single second-half kick. Up until the collision, Zach Butters basically did nothing. Uh, hamburgers. He did have the goal that briefly gave them the lead in the fourth quarter, but it was a pretty quiet game from Sam Powell Pepper, who I've really liked throughout this season. I think the fact that Port need him to be more than just a good supplemental player says something about some of the steps they've taken in a negative direction. He's supposed to be just kind of a bonus, you know? If you get a good contribution out of him, it should turn you from a good team to a great team. It shouldn't be, we have to get a good game out of him or else we're in deep shit. Going through those port stat numbers other than Amon, whom you already mentioned, Dan Houston has remained in very good form. 26 disposals, 12 intercepts, and six marks from the halfback lines. Ryan Burton, 25 disposals, eight marks, gained 635 meters. Travis Boak, who ended up on Dustin Martin a decent amount, with 25 disposals and six marks. Connor Rosie with the goal and 24 disposals, pushed forward a bit more than I would have expected or liked, but was a positive contributor. Alir Alir ended up with eight intercepts, but the biggest thing I noticed from Alir was that there was a kick that went straight through his hands, and that was when Bolton, near the end of the game, 
where Port were still maybe in it a tiny bit. He only got a behind off that, obviously, but I just thought that summarized a lot of the efforts for Port where they couldn't get the right things going at the right times. They were really poor getting the ball into 50. There were some predictable and just bad kicks. And inside 50, 35.4% efficiency, despite being more efficient passing the ball overall. That's in comparison to Richmond, who from the first few minutes vastly improved on their own entries. Todd Marshall finished with three goals in the behind, six marks. I think it's fair to ask with how accurate a kick he's been. Is it worth putting your top defender on him instead of Charlie Dixon? I mean, Dixon's marking ability is second to none, but Marshall's been such a good kick that it may be worth taking more chances against Dixon and doing everything you can to make sure the ball never gets to Marshall in the first place. Dixon's always been a good snap kick, but straighter on, he's had his struggles, so I think it might come down to where they each are in the forward 50, and also just how much your defenders match up size-wise. I feel like if you have someone that is physically even close to Charlie, you're probably more inclined to get him the one-on-one matchup, but it's definitely something I'd at least try for a bit. If all parties involved are healthy when they have the rematch with Geelong, it'd be fun to see how Chris Scott decides to distribute defensive assignments between Sam DeConing, Tom Stewart. Could we see Mark Blitzoff's going back on Dixon, maybe? That actually would be possible now that you mention it. Well, that could free up DeConing and Stewart. DeConing could go on Marshall. Stewart could have more of his roving assignments. Would think Mark O'Connor would probably be on someone like Amon, Rosie, or Wines. I mention this not so much because I'm a Geelong fan, but because it's a really good example of a team with multiple options defensively where they could get creative with the assignments and tell us something about how they perceive Port Adelaide's strengths. What was not a strength for Port was the hitouts. That went 41-18 to Richmond. However, Port were plus seven in clearances, 38 to 31. So that's a plus 30 turnaround from hitouts to clearances. Sam Purple Hayes didn't fly to Melbourne to play on his birthday because of illness. And Ken Hinckley actually praised the combination of Jeremy Finlayson and Charlie Dixon in the Rock. They're both versatile immediately out of those contests. And it's an example of how the raw hitout stats never tell the full story. Gotta look more at hits to advantage and the clearance numbers off those. And with scores only being minus 10 from stoppages, despite that hitout deficit, I have a feeling we might see this tandem more. Maybe that'll allow Hayes some more time to develop in the sample, although I think he's more than ready. It's something that they'll have to manage one way or another. And especially if Scott Lysette is able to make it back, I think you'll definitely see Hayes down the reserves for the rest of the year to see if Finlayson can keep up his ruck form longer term. Stats of note for Richmond, Liam Baker, who we mentioned previously, a goal, two behinds, 26 disposals, nine score involvements, 531 meters gained. Dion Presti had 25 disposals, six score involvements. He gained 489 meters. Jaden Short, 23 disposals, 578 meters gained. Nick Vlostone, 20 disposals, 10 intercepts, and nine marks. I had mentioned in the preview that I was looking for him to play a big game because he had been quiet for a couple weeks. He definitely stood out. He's another one of those that can really be moved a lot of different places on the ground, ended up between the halfback and center most of the time. Jack Graham, a goal, 17 disposals, and a game-high 10 tackles. So Jack Graham was an octopus. 
That's exactly what I was thinking. Richmond started two and four. They're now seven and five, bouncing back from losing late to Sydney with a game that they should have won by more. They're back to their great work off turnovers. I was looking at some league-wide stats. They're the leading team in forward intercepts now since round seven. So once they started that run where they won five of six, they're first in points from turnovers and points from intercepts specifically. And I think the situation is only going to get better for them once Tom Lynch comes back in next week. Against Carlton, they have an opportunity to really punish their fullbacks and have another clear target in getting those runs from turnovers. Speaking of those back lines for Carlton, they got exposed a little bit in the second half just from being a little undersized, but they had pretty firm control of their game against Essendon throughout. It's a shame that the Bombers couldn't put up a better showing in their sesquicentennial game. Sesquicentennial is a really cool word. Their first recorded game was the year after they were founded. They were founded in 1872. The first game was against a Carlton Reserves team in 1873, which is why they were celebrating it this round where they were playing the Blues. It was Essendon 7-12-54, defeated by Carlton 12-8-80. Going back to what I was talking about earlier, though, with the whole steroid thing, the guy that seemed to get the biggest ovation pregame was James Hurd, who was coach when that all unfolded. I also wasn't a fan of how little of Essendon's history from before their 1993 premiership was recognized. And that seems like a sentiment that's shared by a larger amount of the fan base. Yeah, I mean, if you're celebrating 150 years, it's not, you know, this isn't the 1993 premiership reunion. This is... I mean, that'll be next year. You could have done a much more big picture focus, even if... A lot of the members of some of those older teams aren't still alive. I think it's worth celebrating. And especially with the thing being hammered home at the end about Essendon being a family club, that's when you could have called in, you know, the families of past players to represent them. They could have done a little something for each of the 16 premiership teams like that. It's like how when the Toronto Maple Leafs retired all the numbers that they had previously honored, they had family members of the players who had died representing them. It's unfortunate this happened in such a high-profile game for the club, but Essendon really played like shit. They did have a nice little three-goal in three-minute spring in the first quarter where they had a brief one-point lead, but other than that, they were just awful all around. Got down by 24 at halftime, 28 after three quarters, final margin was 26, and frankly, Carlton didn't even play a good second half. I don't think they played that well overall. I think they could have taken a lot more advantage of Essendon just never being right on defense. They were transitioning poorly from those back lines. Even when they had the numbers they struggled and there was little to no pressure, there was a really bad sequence in the middle of the third quarter where pretty much no one was following Carlton's defenders as they were going forward, and a couple of them ended up factoring into the play. But still, Carlton need to learn how to slow down late. They need to learn how to play better at slower speeds. That's going to be the next step. And if there's one thing that can firmly cement Michael Voss's team in the top four, that might be what it is. Without it, a late two-goal lead is going to be incredibly vulnerable. They really don't seem to have a sense of time and score. Frankly, though, this night, even if it hadn't been marked by their 150th anniversary, I think just the way this game went, the focus would have been on how bad Essendon was. Dyson Heppel, six turnovers, and it felt like more than that because there were some pretty bad ones in there. There were three, I believe, that led directly to goals, if not more. 
even if you're a motivational captain off the field, even if you deliver a damn good pregame speech, according to all accounts, you got to back it up on the field. Jaden Laverde routinely got punked in the back end. Zach Reed was completely overwhelmed. Ben Rutten actually openly said, we need more from Jake Stringer, who had just a behind and nine touches. He's been in and out of the side dealing with a hamstring. Clearly, if Rutten is ragging on him like that, he thinks Stringer is back at 100%. But for Essendon, there's been a lack of small forwards in general, a lack of good play out of the ones that they've been trying to put in there. The absence of one... I'm going to milk that sound bite for all it's worth. Thank you, Pickett Palace. But Walla's absence has been evident from round one. It would be nice if they were able to say that their biggest problem is a lack of a goal sneak or really dominant small forward, but they have so many defensive issues that it's really on the back burner. Essendon are going to kind of have to build from half forward, I would say. Dylan Scheel had a goal on 27 disposals and 10 tackles. Zach Merritt's still amazed how quickly he came back from his injury. 26 disposals, 536 meters gained. Also liked what I saw from Harry Jones, who had two goals and a behind, and not dead Ben Hobbs, who had a goal, even though the one thing that I'll remember from Hobbs in this game was Adam Saad coming up behind him and getting a massive tackle. Also, Sam Draper had another pretty strong game. Andrew Phillips ended up taking more hitouts than Draper did. That allowed Draper to spend more time forward, had 19 to hit outs and two goals to his name. As for Heppel, if he played more cleanly, you'd say this was a pretty decent game for him because he had a goal and a behind, 24 disposals and eight intercepts. It's just that those turnovers killed them. For the Blues, it's what we've come to expect from them that they had a big second quarter. 5-3 in the second was their biggest output, and that ended up giving them the margin they needed, though against a team that's anywhere close to the eight. I feel like they would have definitely struggled to hold on. However, they had plenty of good performers all over the ground. The stat halls are impressive from a lot of players. And the one that I ended up noticing the most other than the goal scorers, Makai and Kernow, was Sam Doherty, who has been anywhere and everywhere pretty much the whole season. And this may have been his best game yet. 33 disposals, nine marks, seven intercepts, six score involvements, 699 meters gained. Job well done. First game back for Harry Mackay. Three goals and a behind with eight marks. He's clearly close to full strength, much faster than expected. Nick Newman, 29 disposals, 10 marks, 577 meters gained. Sam Walsh, 29 disposals. Patrick Cripps, a goal and 28 disposals. George Hewitt, 28 disposals and six marks. Matthew Kennedy, 24 disposals and eight marks. Adam Saad, 19 disposals and six tackles. It was nice to see him do more than just be kind of a ball mover out of the back end, that he was doing more actual defending. And Lewis Young, 18 disposals, seven marks, 14 intercepts. He's going to need to factor in big time again over this three-game stretch that Carlton have coming up. They've got the rematch with Richmond on Thursday, then a Saturday afternoon game against Fremantle, and then... Friday night prime time against St. Kilda. Dockery was the standout performer from the back six, and he ended up going forward a lot, but the stay-at-home guys started off pretty well, including Caleb Marchbank, who had a couple nice marks early on. Great story there, having not played in the AFL for just about three years in the second half, and I think there's real potential for them to just get really exposed and show 
just how much Jacob Wiedering matters. I do want to mention during their bye week report, I said if you had to pick someone who's disappointed this year, it was Lockie Plowman. And I thought he had one of his best games, including a really big smother on Jake Stringer in the third quarter. There were two games Saturday, and the first one was one that I had said, despite the gap between the team's records, could have been a tricky matchup that stayed close. And sure enough, it did, with Fremantle pulling out a 13-point win at home against Hawthorne. By the way, just want to mention how weird it is to have a Saturday day game in Perth. That's been pretty rare the last few years. I'm very happy that they're not just sticking end-of-day games there. I know it gets old for the supporters. It probably gets old for the viewers across the country as well. And for us being up super late, sometimes just like, oh, we're ending in Perth again, especially as a disgruntled Eagles fan. Dockers won this one 14-11-95 to 12-10-82, but faced a 10-point halftime deficit. They did then respond with a six-goal third quarter, but never really pulled away. This was a game the whole way through. Fremantle went into the final quarter up by 14, but led by as little as six with six and a half to go before finishing the game off. Hawthorne did an incredible job taking the Dockers out of their own element. They made them play from stoppage. They took Fremantle's speed and threw it right back at them. I look at both teams in a really positive light from this game. Hawthorne because they came up with a pretty different game plan from what they normally do. The players latched onto it quickly and got results out of it, and Fremantle for winning a game where they got totally taken out of their element because most of the time, their success has been, we do what we do, you can't stop it. When you get this sort of game plan thrown at you and executed as well as the Hawks did, and you still manage to win, that says something about your team's versatility, and that says a lot about having a really high talent level. Good teams win when they play their own style, But great teams can win when they get taken out of their element. And again, that's where Frio really won this game. It's weird. You usually expect teams to do well when they get their own style thrown in their faces, but maybe it's just because Fremantle have a more unique style that they aren't necessarily as well prepared for it, even though they see it all the time in their practices. Not exactly sure where some sort of psychology goes into that, perhaps. It's also how much of the season are you spending game planning against yourself? You know, that's something you you do more in the offseason. Within the season, you're prepping for each opponent. What I would imagine happened here is Frio prepared for Hawthorne one way. What they got ended up differing from that, but they made good halftime adjustments after they were probably lucky to get into halftime down by just 10, considering the 32 to 21 margin and inside 50s favoring the Hawks. One player who really helped turn the tide in the second half was Blake Akers. He's someone that I've definitely begun to notice more and more the past few rounds. Oh, against Geelong, he was outstanding. That was definitely the game that caused me to start paying attention to him a lot more. I believe he had 11 touches before the midpoint of the third quarter. Wasn't a player that necessarily finished a lot of passages, but started a good amount of them, was in the middle of a few. And I thought that once he went down with a hamstring injury, that Hawthorne might be able to take advantage of that and kind of shock Rio. But props to them for holding on. Had Griffin Logue going back and forth between the forward and back lines. Still pretty raw at forward. Seems like his instincts are still developing. 
he was involved in a couple weird sequences, one with the second goal of the game, and then there was another later on where he should have marked but ended up getting a handball to Michael Walters in a tight space. This was also the return of Nat Fife, who split time between midfield and forward, started in the center, was more forward as the game went on, ended up getting a close-range goal out of it, and holy cow, just so many different weapons for Fremantle, not just that they were able to bring in between Fife, Sam Swatkowski coming back, but also look who they had to leave out. Even with Michael Frederick suspended for playing Drink the Beer, they had to leave out Ethan Hughes, they had to leave out Lloyd Meek, Neil Erasmus remains in the waffle. Again, these are great sorts of problems to have during the season, and then it'll be fascinating to see how things get sorted out after the season when people who demand more playing time or want different opportunities try to sort things out. But we're right in the middle of things right now, and it's a pretty enviable position when you have to leave out so many great players. I also want to note that James Aish got off to a really poor start but played pretty well in the second half. Brennan Cox is another one who really stepped his game up as things progressed. It wasn't that Brennan Cox was the key piece to Fremantle's success, but when he was on, the team tended to be as well. Happened to be around the times when pressure was good going forward as well, even though he wasn't necessarily involved in as much of that. In terms of the stat halls for individual Dockers, at this point, Andrew Brayshaw has got to be in the top three conversation for the Brownlow. He had 37 disposals, six marks, six tackles, and a really important late soccer goal. Could end up being a goal of the week nominee. Find out at the end of the show. Caleb Sarong had 33 disposals. Hayden Young with 31 touches, 10 marks, eight intercepts, 585 meters gained. He was really the main engine behind getting the ball out of their own 50. Luke Ryan involved with that sum as well. 27 disposals, 11 intercepts, 10 marks, and 531 meters gained. Between those two, you have the guy that stopped the ball from going further and the guy that helped get it out. You mentioned James Aish, a goal, 25 disposals, and 7 marks. Jordan Clark with 25 and 8 marks. A couple of good spoils as well. The aforementioned Blake Akers with a goal, 24 disposals, 692 meters. I'm sorry if it seems like we're going on forever, but there are just a whole lot of performances that we want to highlight with the stats because we can't go into greater detail about a lot of them. And we kind of have to have the stats do the talking if we don't want to talk for two hours. Will Brody acquire a game of the clearances, actually? Only one of those, though. The rest of the team did help make up for that a bit. But he had 22 touches and eight tackles. Michael Walters has had an excellent past few weeks. 2-1, 22 disposals and six marks. And Brennan Cox with 21 disposals and 12 marks. Kind of fitting that we put him at the end of this when he was a barometer for the team's success as a whole. I had a feeling Hawthorne was not going to struggle as much with the Fremantle forward pressure. Some of that's because their defenders are pretty mobile. What was interesting was CJ didn't end up moving the ball much. It was James Sicily who gained 643 meters, highest of anyone in the game. 22 disposals, 9 marks, and 8 intercepts. He was also alone at times defensively because before getting subbed out with a knee injury, Sam Frost was actually playing forward some. Wasn't necessarily the most accurate kick, but a different look and one that could end up panning out if he ends up if he ends up cleaning up his kicks toward goal. Jager O'Meara, 30 disposals, 7 marks, and 7 tackles. Tom Mitchell, 28 disposals. Dylan Moore, a pair of goals and 18 disposals. Jack Scrimshaw, 8 intercepts. And 
I was really impressed with Luke Bruce as sort of a pressure forward, kind of like the type of guy that Fremantle has seemingly an entire team of. He finished with six tackles plus two goals in the behind. Hawthorne are probably the most impressive 4-9 team you could ever see with just how many games in which they've stuck around. And I don't necessarily think they're completely out of it yet. They've got a pretty favorable five-game stretch coming up after their bye next round. They got the Bulldogs at Marvel. They go to GWS, a home game against Adelaide at Marvel, West Coast at the G, and then they go to Hobart to play North. 9-9 and and getting right back into things isn't necessarily out of the picture, though I think they'll end up falling short in the end. I just think that the way they've played overall isn't reflecting in their record as of now. So you think 4-9 and nine Hawthorne have a better chance of finals than 5-7 and seven Port Adelaide? I honestly do, yes. I wouldn't go that far, but I think next year, finals are very much within reach, especially if they just have better luck with injuries. Remember, this is a team that's had a lot of man games lost to injury, including perhaps the most important one of all being Ben McAvoy. And Ned Reeves has played more than admirably being the only ruck out there since he's come back since Max Lynch was a laid out. And Hawthorne were as into this game as they were without Mitch Lewis, who had some knee soreness and was a laid out as well. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Don't forget, you can always see our real-time reactions to live games on Twitter, at Americans Footy, and you can find me individually at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01, and Brian Harambe, the footy cat, was in here until a little ago when Ethan let him out to play again. He is on Instagram, at CatNamedGrian. Two of the final three games in this round were really compelling matchups that got out of hand late when one team got absolutely shredded by injuries. Fortunately, both of those games will be accompanied by a rematch in about two months' time, so if you feel like we didn't quite get our money's worth with Brisbane-St. Kilda because the Saints got absolutely decimated by injuries down the stretch, fear not, because come round 22, these teams are going to play again. Hopefully that's a Friday night primetime game, but there will be a bunch of good matchups that round that can make that difficult one way or another. Hopefully that'll live up to as good as the first three quarters were, if not more, of this one. It was the return of Joe Danaher. He got off to a slow start in terms of kicking, but once he got his first home, seemed a bit more confident, and and the team ended up following him in some respects. It was only around the midpoint of the fourth quarter that the Lions were finally able to stretch it out, and those injuries did really have a big impact down the stretch. Both teams ended up losing some significant pieces, but Brisbane ended up winning 10-18-78 to St. Kilda, 8-9-57. A lot of potential for more points from both sides of this one, especially for the Lions, but they got the job done. Some interesting things right off the bat for Brisbane in that Darcy Fort was the sub. He and Jackson Pryor made way in the 22 for Danaher and Rob Vlogs himself, Mitch Robinson. Chris Fagan said that 
he made Fort the sub to protect against any catastrophe versus the tandem of Patty Ryder and Rowan Marshall if Oscar McInerney ended up injured. I also saw it as a way to bring new energy into those contests if Fort was required. He ended up coming in for Dane Zorko in the latter half of the third quarter and kind of supplanted Daniel McStay as the second ruck from there. It was a pretty even battle there throughout, so I guess the plan worked. And hey, the Lions got the four points, keeping up their very strong streak at the GABA. You mentioned the battle between McInerney and Ryder, which, while it was compelling, neither one really did much anywhere else on the ground, which caught me off guard. McInerney had a few important marks late, I noticed. But yeah, didn't expect Ryder to be so quiet throughout the ground. I think Marshall was the most prominent in contests outside of the pure ruck work. But the bigger stories ended up being Brisbane's midfield firing really well. More big games out of Bucky Neal and Hugh McCluggage pressing forward. Having some really tall forward groups at times, especially with McStay, Hibwood, and Danaher going together, actually worked out. Even without the injuries, I think Brisbane had the better forward half and would have taken control of this game late one way or another. The Lions did a great job ensuring that seeing Hilda's best players didn't impact the game much. Bradley Hill was really quiet. Was most noticeable for dropping a mark early in the fourth quarter, which allowed McCluggage to get his goal from 50 meters. You noted that the positioning on that was similar to kind of a slot shot in hockey. That actually put it out to 11, but the Saints fired back a couple minutes later was still back and forth, even with St. Kilda being down a couple rotations until about 10 minutes to go. Overall, this game kind of took the reverse of the sort of flow I expected. I thought after the first quarter, we were going to get a big second quarter from the Lions, and then the game would be predicated on just how strong St. Kilda's response was in the third quarter. Instead, the second quarter mostly belonged to St. Kilda. They actually went into halftime up by 12, but Brisbane came and turned the game around in the third quarter, outscoring the Saints 28-13. to And then, as you alluded to, they held on late and put the game away when they finally wore the Saints down with the lack of interchanges they were able to make after the injuries really started piling up, which unfortunately deprived us of a crazy down-to-the-wire finish. The Saints never scored after a Max King behind with a little under 14 minutes to go. King hit his first two shots and then settled for behinds on the other three. Degree of difficulty was decently high on those three behinds. Usually, though, when he gets off to a good start, he just picks up so much momentum and is impossible to stop. Harris Andrews ended up one-on-one with King a lot and did a pretty good job on him after those first couple Andrews ended up with four intercepts and seven marks. It was enough to disrupt Max's momentum, I think. As for the Saints' injuries, Mitch Owens was concussed after a clash involving Joe Danaher and Lincoln McCarthy a little bit. He was subbed out for Jared Leonard at halftime. Then early in the third, Daniel McKenzie took a hell of a mark between Charlie Cameron and Jimmy Webster. He hit the deck really hard after Cameron took out his legs. While McKenzie was airborne, people were saying that Cameron might end up getting into some MRO trouble for tunneling and ended up not being the case. But that put St. Kilda one man down. And then Zach Jones went down with a hamstring issue, was officially ruled out late. So at the very end of things, when the Saints were trying to make their last push, they were down to two interchanges. Meanwhile, 
The Lions had Captain Dane Zorko suffering a left hamstring injury that will likely put him out for three weeks, which will likely be similar to Jones. It wasn't that serious based off of what you could tell visually, but having the bye definitely works in his favor. Even though the Lions have a top two clash against Melbourne next, there was concern that it was going to get even worse for both teams, especially with Darcy Gardner's knee getting banged up and Mason Wood having his ankle looked at. Both teams ended up finishing this game with a missing wheel and one headlight. And it was a matter of just winning a sort of war of attrition, outlasting your opponent to the end. And with the greater numbers that the Lions managed to have, maybe they had both headlights, just the second one was pretty faint. They did get over the line, and they should be pretty thankful that they have that extra week, whereas the Saints are thrust right back into things Whereas the Saints, well, I mean, they should have an easy time against Essendon and they'll have some good reinforcement in guys like Jack Billings. But at the same time, they do have to play next week. Another big possession game for Lockie Neal with 37 disposals and six marks. Hugh McCluggage, one of his biggest games of the year. An important goal with 33 disposals, 574 meters gained. Jared Lyons ended up with three behinds, did not kick a goal, but 29 disposals, eight marks. Gained 528 meters. Daniel Rich, 26 disposals, 7 marks, 499 meters gained. And Jared Berry, 25 disposals, 8 marks, and 6 tackles. All those players impressed me, but I've come to expect a lot of them doing big things, especially Neil and McCluggage. The line that stood out to me for all the right reasons was Kadeem Coleman. He often plays in the middle of the ground, sometimes goes toward half board. This game, though, he played back a lot and is a damn good intercept mark for his size. He ended up with two intercept marks, seven intercept possessions overall, nine marks in total, four tackles, including a couple pretty important ones as part of a 19 disposal effort. He's overlooked because of the depth Brisbane has, but he's one of the players that I like keeping track of in-game the most. And I think on a lot of other teams, he'd get a lot more attention. As for the Saints, we already talked about Max King kicking 2-3. Along with that, you had Jack Sinclair as their big disposal guy with 30 of them, along with 8 intercepts and 639 meters gained. Zeb Ross with 29 disposals, Brad Crouch with 26 and 10 tackles, and Jimmy Webster with 18 and 8 intercepts. Acquired a game for Callum Wilkie, but Webster stood his ground well. The only game of this round that had neither team anywhere near the top eight was the lone Sunday game, North Melbourne hosting GWS at Marvel Stadium. And from the outset, it was clear that North did not show up on this day. The final score made it look a lot better than it was, considering that they were down 47 at halftime. North Melbourne 7-11-53, defeated by GWS 15-12-102. I was hoping for an exciting game, was trying to will it to be one, but clearly my will wasn't strong enough, or just North couldn't muster anything for the most part. The team effort by which I was most impressed was the 13,742 fans that showed up to Marvel Stadium. North were clamoring for fans to show up all week. They did in far more reasonable numbers than I expected, and it looks like there might be a fan group that just goes around supporting interstate teams. There were some shots of some people wearing Giants gear, but also with Gold Coast Suns scars, so not exactly sure what the story is there, but cool concept nonetheless. One reason why I thought the game would end up a bit closer than it was 
was because Braden Proust wasn't named for this one at all. He ended up playing in the VFL, whereas Matt Flynn was alone against Todd Goldstein and Tristan Jerry. Those two more than had their way in this one. Hitouts were 60-13. to 13. Off of that, North were able to get a slight win in overall clearance numbers, but it just didn't feel like it because the Giants were going through the middle of the ground so easily, so many quick runs for them. It really looks like Mark McVeigh has simplified their movement, and that's ended up working really well for them. Kind of going back to what some commentators have called the orange tsunami, what people saw between maybe 2016 and 19, between the year of their run to the prelims against the Dogs, and on the back end of that to the grand final against the Tigers. A lot of things were going through Stephen Canelio again. Another really strong game for the eyebrow man with three goals and two behinds. A very efficient game for him as well. The one player that stood out to me the most, though, was Harry Himmelberg, who has been a revelation as a back. I know he came to Greater Western Sydney as a back, but I didn't expect him to be able to regain that form so easily. Absolutely monstrous day for him. How about 37 disposals, 16 marks, 11 intercepts, 5 score involvements, showing you just how much the Giants were able to convert on passages that started deep in their own end. And he ended up getting a goal for himself as well. He's a player that the two of us in our first couple years watching the game recognized as someone who's generally an accurate kick. But McVeigh has all of a sudden turned him into just this outstanding all-around talent. And I don't think that's just because they were playing North. I think it's just he has that natural ability and he's been able to harness it again in the past few rounds. A couple months ago when Connor Iden played forward, I posed the question... Could GWS take some of their forwards and play them further back in the idea of seeing which ones could play as defenders so that they could have their best 22 out there simply because otherwise they'd have a disproportionate number of forwards if they wanted to get their actual best 22? I would never have guessed Himmelberg would have been one of the ones they would have tried back there because I thought they liked him too much in that forward position. But clearly, he not only can play as a defender, he can play as a really good one. And I'm amazed just how quickly and easily he's made that transition. Himmelberg also gained 697 meters to go along with all those other crazy totals. I'd say this is a pretty easy three votes for him, even with Stephen Canelio getting three goals, two behinds, 34 disposals, and six marks. Three other Giants with 30 or more disposals as well. Isaac Cumming, 31 and 10 marks. Tom Green, no fan club, no matter. 30 and six tackles. And Callan Ward the first player to reach 200 games with the Giants, 30 and 7 marks. Lockie Whitfield had 29 and 14 marks, going back toward the wing a lot of the time. Josh Kelly with 27. Tanner Brune with 2 goals, 24 disposals, and 7 marks. Toby Green, 2-1 and 8 marks. Always someone that you have to watch out for one way or another, even when he isn't getting the ball. Looking back toward defense along with Himmelberg, Sam Taylor with 11 marks and 8 intercepts and Adam Kennedy with 10 marks. Amidst all this, you might have lost that Jimmy Peatling kicked three goals for the third game in a row. Cracking that forward group was not easy to begin with, with how much forward talent the Giants have, and he has done a really good job to prove that he belongs out there every week. Very few positives for North Melbourne, but Luke Davies Uniac with 33 disposals, he gained 574 meters, 31 disposals for Jai Simpkin, Jed Anderson, 24 disposals, 7 marks in a game-high, 7 clearances. And Curtis Taylor, 18 disposals, 8 marks, and 7 intercepts. 
want to highlight a couple other players as well that at least passed the eye test for me. If your name was Curtis, you were probably one of the better things that North had because Paul Curtis had a decent game, uh, which included a goal and four marks. Todd Goldstein had 33 headouts and a couple goals and a behind. He started off the game with going to ground to get a tackle and I believe got a holding the ball call off bit. And I was thinking from there that North might be in at least decent shape to stay competitive if Goldstein was leading them like that, but clearly not the case. Nick Larkey also had two goals in a behind, but only had seven touches. But there's so many pieces that were just AWOL for the Kangaroos. Hugh Greenwood ended up with just eight touches. Jack Zeeble with six. Jaden Stevenson, five. It was a struggle at times for Jason Horn Francis to get up to eight himself. I'll cut Kane Turner some slack because he had a decent defensive effort. He went with Josh Kelly most of the game, and even though Kelly got big numbers, they weren't necessarily as meaningful for most of the game. But overall, I was thinking of the sort of Wall Street definition of insanity when it came to North Melbourne, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I don't really see them changing anything tactically, and that's as big a problem as anything. And with how they were pleading for the crowd to get there, and with how they might have even had some potential going into this game to see what worked in that first quarter against the Suns. This is just ridiculously disappointing. Go back further, you can see that they stuck with Sydney for all of round four. They stuck with Melbourne for the first half plus in round 10. This looked like a lack of effort to me in a lot of ways. It seemed like Jason Horn Francis put in the most effort, striking Josh Kelly on the chin, And he ended up getting a two-week suspension for that, ruled intentional conduct, medium impact, and high contact. You've also got Lockie Young facing a week for rough conduct against Matt DeBoer. I think that one needs to be appealed. I think he has a case, even with it being regarded as careless conduct, for it to be dropped to a fine. But there are so many things that aren't clicking on the field already for North, and the off-field issues seem to be seeping on there as well. And I figure if Essendon are already doing a club review of sorts in Ben Rutten's second year, there's no reason that North don't do the same in their coach's second year when they're even worse off. I hate seeing teams like this. I hate seeing teams not even be able to be competitive. I mean, North look worse than the West Coast Eagles now. And that's a shame for the clearly dedicated fans that they have, not just the ones that showed up to the game, but the ones that have continued to support them throughout this year, the ones that continue to remain optimistic. Hopefully they figure out the things that they have to patch up and that they do that quickly enough that they can develop some of their younger talent into something special before they all want to leave. Unfortunately, that might already be too late for Horn Francis. They look more dysfunctional than I've ever seen. You know, all three years we've watched, they've been bad. But this is the first time there's been this level of dysfunction, this lack of camaraderie. You know, compare that to last year when they got their first win, how excited everyone was, and how positive and upbeat things seemed. The tone has really shifted there for the worse. I don't want to keep dragging a team down when the national media is already all over them, and when we have so much more going on that was genuinely exciting, like Everything that happened a few hours before we started recording this. The Queen's birthday match back at the G for the first time in three years. Over 76,000 on hand. You had the big freeze before with a ton of fun moments. I was particularly fond of how dedicated Neil Danaher's oldest brother Terry was to the Crocodile Dundee costume. And then getting into the game itself, I had a feeling after the first quarter 
with how Collingwood ended up controlling a lot of the pace of play, getting a whole bunch of runs, especially through the middle, that they were going to end up taking control, kind of like how the Sydney Swans didn't convert against Melbourne last round in the first quarter, but ended up seizing things. And while it took a bit longer for that to happen in this one, I ended up being proven right, even if the circumstances ended up being different. Melbourne's thinner and newer defense faltered late, especially once Daniel Turner, who had a promising debut, went down concussed. Collingwood took advantage of some guy named Mason Cox catching fire, and they ended up winning by 26 points to put themselves back into the eight. Collingwood 12-10-82 over Melbourne 8-8-56. Just like St. Kilda, Melbourne had a lot of late injuries derail them and kind of deprive them of having a real shot in the final minutes. Not just the Turner concussion, but Harrison Petty was banged up after a big mark. Max Gaughan went off multiple times with knee problems. James Harms took a big blow from steel side bottom that slowed him down for a bit. And in the end, the D's just ran out of gas in a game that Mason Cox really took over down the stretch. You know, Mason's had good games before on big stages. I mean, look at his debut back on Anzac Day. What a revelation he was then. Actually didn't watch that 2018 prelim final for a while just because... I don't know, maybe I was more focused on going back and watching the Eagles games in that, but he seems to shine in front of the biggest crowds. And the other big thing for him is how much confidence he gets from just one good kick. He had a couple behinds in the first half. I remember tweeting out, come on, Mason, you got a contract on the line because he still can get another year if he plays enough. And then once he finally got his goal near the middle of the third quarter, He turned into that great player that we know that he can be, started marking super well, factoring into plays all over the ground. It was so surprising to see Collingwood. It was surprising to see Collingwood function through him as much as they did, but it was the most pleasant of surprises for us Americans. It's one thing to teach a guy, stand here, catch this ball, and then kick it, especially when you've got soccer and basketball in your background. This was the most complete all-around performance I've ever seen from him. And it's funny because just a few weeks ago against Brisbane, outside of when he was set to take marks in the forward 50, he looked lost positioning-wise. He was in the right spot just about every play all night. That's a credit both to him and to the coaches for helping him figure that out. And that requires a higher level of familiarity with the sport. And remember, this is a sport that he wasn't playing until his early 20s, whereas Most of the guys his age have an extra, what, 15 some years of experience on him. So for him to acclimate and display that, that's something I had never seen out of him before. And whether or not you're invested because he's American, it's so cool to see that development and to see it happen so quick. Other big factors for Collingwood that I may have not necessarily expected going into this one, even as well as Nick Dacos had been going, I didn't think he would keep up just the elite form that he's had, but I saw him as kind of co-captaining the defense a lot of time alongside Scott Pendlebury, and Pendlebury has continued to show just how much he can still contribute as a halfback. Of course, still able to push forward, but one of the most accurate kicks from the defensive 50 and the back half as a whole That was one of Collingwood's best facets of the game, and it was kind of coupled with Melbourne not being able to hold the ball inside their forward 50. They had some good stints of forward pressure, but once Collingwood were able to get a little bit of open space with the ball, 
They were usually able to clear it out pretty quickly, especially in the second half. Melbourne led by 22 midway through the second quarter, but Collingwood got it down to eight by halftime as they closed the first half on a 15-2 run, trailed by 20 in the third after a rare brain fart by Darcy Moore set Kazi Pickett up for a smother and quick goal. And yet they managed to get the lead down to two by the end of the third. In that sequence, that second half of the third quarter is really when Mason started to take over the game and create problems all over the ground. And frankly, Collingwood would have probably taken the lead by then if it wasn't for a masterful quarter from Angus Brayshaw. Brayshaw had 11 kicks and 13 disposals overall in the third. He was functioning at 92%, eight marks, five of which were intercepts. He had eight intercept possessions overall. He was their lifeline back there. And as well as he was seeing the ball, if they tried to move him forward to try to make more of an impact on the scoreboard, they would have had no line of defense to stop whoever Mason Cox was getting the ball to, if not Mason himself. I highlighted Cox handballing over the top to Jamie Elliott to get the lead down to two with 4.59 left in the third quarter. That was especially because Elliott was involved in the head clash with Daniel Turner, from which Turner ended up getting concussed. Elliot didn't have to go down to the rooms for a test at all. I thought at the time, man, are Collingwood really taking the Port Adelaide approach here? But it seemed like Jamie was just fine. Ended up with three goals all in the second half. And to do that along with Brody Majacek's four straight, when Majacek was earlier in the week considered to be doubtful for the game, that was what ended up getting Collingwood over the line just purely in terms of the scoreboard. Majacek's goal from 54 meters out gave them their first lead since the opening quarter. That came with about 15 minutes remaining. Then Bo McCreary got out in transition and kicked to what was an open goal square, but Jamie Elliott ended up running it down, marking it, and kicking the easy goal. Melbourne got one back when Luke Jackson took a nice mark off a long kick in from James Jordan, who had a quietly nice game. But they would get outscored 24-2 over the final 10 minutes. Oliver Henry had a really quiet game until his goal with 6.42 left. Majacek beat Petty in the goal square for a contested mark, and that created a goal with a little over four minutes remaining. It was at that point that I was absolutely sure it was over. I think I told you it was over maybe as soon as they took the lead. Either when they took the lead or when Elliot got the goal to put him up 10. You weren't so sure at the time, though. When did you know? I'd say that goal with... 419 left by Majacek, although I felt throughout the fourth quarter from the time they had taken the lead, definitely from when they had gone up by 10, that it was Collingwood's game to lose. But I felt the D's were still very much in it until the final four minutes. And even within those final four minutes, it was not until Ben Brown kind of rushed a kick and missed to the left with 253 left that it was like, all right, this is really done. And then they got a couple extra goals in the final minutes out of Jack Crisp and another one for Elliott to finish off his night. Josh Dacos with the final two goal assists on that. And that last goal, the third for Jamie Elliott, ended up putting the Brisbane Lions on top of the ladder. It ended up knocking Melbourne down by about a percent. And that's why for the first time since round three, the Lions are back on top, though it's just by 0.2%. And they'll be facing the Ds once they get off their buys in round 15. Despite a third straight loss, I actually thought this was probably the best game the D's had played within this losing streak. I think they were the victim of a lot of circumstances out of their control. Having that many in-game injuries is just one of those things that you can't predict. And 
it would be hard for any team to win in those circumstances. However, Stephen May didn't do them any favors with the whole Entrecote brawl, which kind of got glossed over in the past couple days with everything around Bailey Smith and more recently Jason Horn Francis. Surprised that that has fallen out of the news cycle so quickly, but it was clear that Melbourne were a step behind in defense. They didn't have their leader back there, and that ended up really mattering late. I get why you say that this is Melbourne's best game in this stretch. I might consider the Sydney effort a little better for a couple different reasons, even with May being out of that as well. My big concern is that the D's are now 1-3 against the current date. They haven't even averaged 58 points the last three rounds, and they can't prevent the ball from getting out of their forward 50 when the forward pressure was one of the things that was going for them in their finals run last year. The domino effect of the injuries and taking things like moving Mitch Brown from forward to back into a defensive role was huge because he had been playing really well up front. He had been one of the forwards that could actually put on some pressure. But I think everyone's perception of the D's has changed the last few weeks and understandably so. With good health, they're still the best. Their best 22 is the best, best 22 in the competition. That's hard to argue. But are they becoming a little too predictable, a little too complacent with how they like to move slowly a lot of the time? That allows teams to see where they're going, be able to kind of pounce on things and quickly turn back. I think these last few weeks have kind of shown that they are a very strong tower, but if you remove one of the bricks out of that tower, all the other bricks can come tumbling down because all the pieces are so carefully intertwined and all play such specific roles that feed off each other that they don't have a lot of plug-and-play guys, whereas Richmond has these guys that they can slide around. Melbourne has guys that are stuck in very, very specific roles, and when any one of them is altered, it can have a domino effect that really hurts the rest of the team. I think this was a game, though, as long as the injuries that come out of this aren't serious, could be one of those games where they lost the game but found themselves as a team, kind of came together, found an identity, and I think the three straight losses can help kind of take the attention a bit away from the May and Melksham stuff where that can kind of be a footnote to the general discourse. And I think that a difficult loss like this in front of a huge crowd, holiday game, get bruised and beaten physically, can be a galvanizing moment and can be the sort of thing that rallies a team together. And they can look at this as, yeah, we lost and the final score doesn't reflect it, but we were in it the whole way despite a lot of things working against us. And I think coming out of the bye, they will be in a much better position and while they might not be able to get quite back to the insane level they were on the first few rounds of this season, they're still a damn good team, and I think they're going to be all right. One other thing that may have worked against the Ds, but I think worked well overall, was that the umpires actually let them play in this game. And while there were a few calls that should have been made that weren't, I think the under-officiating is much preferred to the dramatic over-officiating that we've been seeing more often than not. And it wasn't drastic under-officiating. It was just they established that they weren't going to call everything. There was some leeway. Again, maybe a little more leeway than there should have been. But overall, it was nice to have the game not turn into a free kick fest and actually have some sense of flow and rhythm to it. Grand total of free kicks, 32, 14 to Collingwood, 18 to Melbourne. You could debate about who was the best player on ground. I would give it to Angus Brayshaw, who had 29 disposals, 13 intercepts, 11 marks, 
Whoever voted on the Neil Danaher trophy ended up giving it to Clayton Oliver, who had a goal, 43 disposals, 7 marks, and 614 meters gained. He did his best work in the first half, but was consistent at getting the ball throughout and helped move the ball off packs a lot, even if the touches didn't end up being the most impactful going towards scores. I would have given it to Mason. We'll get into the Collingwood stats a bit, just to run through the rest for Melbourne. This was one of Jack Viney's best games. A goal, 33 disposals, 12 tackles, and 7 marks. Christian Petraka still can't kick super straight toward goal. Had it behind as part of a 32 disposal, 8 clearance day. You talked about James Jordan having a quietly good day. I didn't realize he ended up with 29 touches, 8 marks, 829 meters gained, by far the leading ground gainer. And Christian Salem has returned pretty nicely, 25 disposals and 7 marks. You have him in the mix with May and a healthy Jake Lever and maybe Harrison Petty as well. You have all those pieces 100%, and the Ds should get back to their winning ways. For Collingwood, Nick Dacos, 33 disposals, 9 intercepts. Jack Crisp, a goal, 29 disposals, 8 intercepts. Braden Maynard, 25 disposals, 12 intercepts. 10 intercepts for Darcy Moore. Brody Majacek, a 4-goal, 16-disposal, 10-mark performance. And Mason Cox, a goal, 2 behinds, 21 disposals, 8 marks, 9 hitouts, 407 meters gained. And it's worth noting, Collingwood won hitouts and clearances against a team that rarely loses them. 28 to 24 in hitouts, clearances 34 to 28, including 27 to 14 from stoppages. Jack Crisp is a stoppage clearance beast. He loves those tight contests and is able to pick up the ball really well. His ground ball totals have always been strong, and he's been the jumping off point for Collingwood's best work all year long. Nick Dacos and Scott Pendlebury often started from the back, but it really gets going once Crisp is involved. He's another one that could end up in the Brownlow conversation. Definitely top 10, I figure, at this point. What's interesting is he was only credited with two clearances, but you could tell that his presence contributed to a lot of those, whether it was walling someone off, creating space. Nobody had more than six clearances for the Pies, that six being to Jordan Degoe. Other than that, you had Taylor Adams and Josh Dacos with four apiece. But Mason Cox and Darcy Cameron were able to outdo Max Gon and Luke Jackson in the center circle, something I don't think anyone would have seen coming. Even with Gon banged up, Jackson is a damn good ruckman, really athletic in those contests. Can't wait to see how he continues developing. Only 20, already a rising star and a premiership player. But Mason Cox was probably the best player overall in the entire second half. And I can only fathom what the result would have been individually and collectively for Collingwood had he been like that the whole game. The question now is, can he capture the best parts of that performance again? with smaller crowds when he's getting tighter battles the whole way through. I think so much for him depends on that first kick he gets. A couple of things I want to touch on here that they've been able to do this work in the center circle without Brody Grundy is honestly amazing. I did think he's been quiet the last few weeks, but as the game went on and as other pieces fell down, literally and figuratively, Luke Jackson got a lot better, and this could have been the start of a big bounce-back session for him, and if he can carry that momentum out of the bye, it's a reason that I think the Ds may have found themselves in this game despite losing. With the win, Collingwood are back in the eight. They are one of four teams with eight wins, although 
they're eight and five and the other three are eight and four. I really think considering this result, the results from throughout the week and the upcoming schedules, the biggest loser out of this round is Port Adelaide. Not only are they at five and seven, they've got a much tougher schedule moving ahead. Whereas Collingwood, the Hawks, Gold Coast all have much softer schedules. This was not a good week for Port Adelaide, both based off the things within their control and things out of their control. We end this episode like we do every round recap with looking at the Mark and Goal of the Week nominees. Starting with the Mark, the round 12 winner was Isaac Quainer over Dylan Moore, though we both thought Luke Bruce should have gotten it for going in between a couple players and marking. It's one of the rare cases where we thought that a nominee with less contact was better. The three contenders for round 13. You have Joe Danaher leaping, putting his leg in Dougal Howard's midsection and securing the ball. Didn't go up that far, but got good separation. That's also the case for Jack Silvani's mark. He put his leg into Zach Reed's back and was already falling down before the ball arrived. Ended up securing it on his body on second effort. And then Curtis Taylor of North Melbourne had a really nice one over Lachlan Keefe's shoulder. And I'm going with Taylor this week. What about you, Ethan? I'm going to go with Danaher, actually. Taylor definitely got the most elevation, but it was only over one shoulder instead of really elevating over another player in full. So I'm going to go with Danaher. All right. It's somewhat rare that we disagree, so it's kind of fun when we do. As for goal of the week, round 12's winner was deservedly Jason Horn Francis for cleaning up his own fumble spinning around Oleg Markov, geeking Charlie Ballard, and then scoring from close range. Your three nominees for round 13. First off, Andrew Brayshaw soccering in a dribbler while Harry Morrison was draped all over him. It was also an important goal with a little under five minutes left to open up a two-goal lead for the Dockers. Then you've got Charlie Kernow, who received a second-effort Harry Mackay tap and dribbled in the goal from the right side at a tough angle. And finally, Connor Rosie deking through two defenders and scoring from 50. I've been struggling to decide between Brayshaw and Kernow here, but I think, I think I'm going to go with Kernow because of the tough angle, but I could go with either one. Maybe Jason Dunstall is coloring my opinion on dribble kicks. I really like Kernow's because of the angle at which he went like you do. But I'm honestly going toward Brayshaw for this one because of the one-on-one situation and the point at which it was in the game, even though that likely isn't as much a factor for a lot of people who are voting and are just looking at the play in the immediate sense. You also have to note that a lot of people that vote might just be voting for their favorite team. That's going to wrap up our 34th episode. A whole lot to talk about this week, even though there were only six games. A lot of things outside of the footy that seep into our conversation, but all relevant in piecing together the story of this week around the AFL. And we'll keep talking about all these things and more, both in future episodes and on Twitter at Americans Footy. I may also chime in on my personal account at BenjaminHK01, though that may be more dedicated toward my Eagles fandom. I am available at Castle Media. That's starting with a K, of course. Say that every time, basically. And if I don't say it, it's because I've said it enough and don't feel like repeating myself yet again. You can also find Brian Harambe, the funny cat, who is currently sleeping right next to me. You can find him on Instagram exclusively. His name there is Cat Named Brian. Next up for us will be the last of our progress reports with a loaded slate of teams going on their buys. Tune in again once that pushes in a day or two. Thanks a lot.